Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr Louise Tuckwell, a senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed of a general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. I'm fortunate to have with me today Professor Jeff Isbister, an emergency medicine consultant and toxicologist who's been part of the New South Wales Snake Bite Project. So, Professor Isbister, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and the Snake Bite Project? Thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm trained as an emergency physician and then went into clinical toxicology and I almost work, work completely as a clinical toxicologist now, but I also spend quite a large amount of time doing clinical research. And a lot of that's focused on bites and stings, the drug overdose. And probably the main thing we do is the Australian Snake Bite Project, which includes recruitment of almost all snake envenomings across Australia. And we've been doing that for now 15 years. And that's to help us understand a different, the effects of all the different snakes um, more clearly and to determine the correct dose and dosing of antivenom. And more importantly now, the early use of antivenom. I mean, that's changed our approach to uh, snake bite over the last 10 years. Wow, that's very, very interesting. So I thought for today, we're talking about snake bites, we'd begin with a hypothetical case. So we've got a 45-year-old woman brought in by ambulance after being bitten by a snake on her right lower leg while working as a landscaper. A pressure bandage was applied at the scene She's been hemodynamically stable with the paramedics, but has vomited once and had a headache. I thought we would discuss the first initial first aid for a snake bite. What method of pressure bandage application do you recommend? Well, I I like the wording you've got there. I think pressure bandage is the way it should be thought of. In the past, it's been called the pressure immobilisation bandage. But really what we're putting on is a pressure bandage and then immobilising the patient. So the type of bandage, it's probably better to use the elastic type bandage if it's available compared to just crepe. But really any sort of the widest type of bandage that's over the limb. Most importantly, bandaging with pressure over the bite site first. And then there's always argument whether you go up the limb or down the limb. But as long as you bandage the site first, it doesn't really matter how you do the rest of the limb. More importantly is the immobilisation. And it's not just the immobilisation of the limb, it's the immobilisation. Even if you've been bitten on your arm, the patient still needs to be immobilised. So that means if you're bitten by a snake, really you should just lie down and keep still and then get a bandage to it. And I often say the best first aid for snake bite is a mobile phone and lying still, just hopefully you're in range. And then a pressure bandage over the area in the limb, that's the next thing. Okay, that's that's very helpful. So I was going to ask if the bandage is a put on in the field is a standard crepe or you're not happy that it's been applied correctly, whether we should redo this. What are your thoughts there? Uh, it really depends on the on, on the situation. Firstly, you don't want to take off the bandage that's there. So it's probably not unreasonable if you want to put more of a bandage over the top. But often if that, a good bandage hasn't been put on and more, and even more often people haven't been immobilised, so they'll say, I've had the bandage on and walked around, 
doing anything after that's probably not going to make any difference at all. So you certainly don't want to take it off, but you can reinforce it as to how beneficial that is. It's not going to be great. Okay, and I think it's good, as you say, to think about it as a pressure bandage, then immobilisation, or doing both, obviously. With the terms of immobilising, apart from lying still, what are your thoughts about slings and splints and things? Are they what you would advise? Yes, certainly. I mean, to keep the uh, anything that keeps all of your, I mean, what you're trying to do is stop the the muscle pumps in your legs mainly because if you walk, you're basically part and the lymphatics work and that spreads the venom. Similarly with the arm. So if you're bitten on the arm, you've got to keep your arm immobile, but you also got to keep your legs. But if you're lying on a stretcher, I'm not sure how much more a splint on that leg is going to make any difference. You know, yeah. you, it's got to be still. Yeah, I know that's fair enough. Now, what if someone's bitten on the trunk or the abdomen or head and neck? What, what do we do in those instances? They just lie as still as possible. Unfortunately, there's not much else you can do. I mean, possibly you could put pressure directly over the area. There isn't much. Fortunately, uh, those sorts of bites are, are pretty uncommon. Okay, fair enough. Now, in our area, we're no longer using the venom detection kits. And in view of this, if a patient comes without a dressing, should we be cleaning the wound before putting our pressure bandage on? No, I just I wouldn't even you know bother. I know they said not to wash the venom off, but I'm not even sure why you would be washing it. All you want to do is whack on a um, the bandage. You, washing venom away on the skin's not going to act as first aid. Um, because it's not injected. Um, so anything that slows the process down, I don't think it's worth it all. Okay. Oh, that's good. Now, as always, we need to start our assessment with attending to our ABCs and getting two lots of intravenous access. Now, if we don't need to immediately resuscitate the patient, what important features do we need to obtain when taking our history? So in terms of history, something about the you know, the bite to determine, is this a definite snake bite? So is this someone who's been walking along and felt something and might have, say they've got some fang marks, or did they see the snake and did they see the snake bite them? Because that changes your assessment in terms of whether this is a definite bite or not. But then any sort of features of envenoming. And then non-specific systemic effects is all you're going to get in the first uh, period after the bite. So that's a nausea, vomiting, headache, abdominal pain, diarrhoea. Those five are probably the most important. Sometimes diaphoresis is put in there, but it's it's not one of the symptoms I'd be most concerned about. And in terms of how important they are, vomiting and headache, the commonest important ones. Okay. But, you know, if you've got abdominal pain and diarrhoea, they're like, you know that's going to be a snake bite. They're just not as common, if that makes sense. Okay. Okay. No, that's that's very good. And what should our approach be to examining the patient in our initial workup? It's not so important to look at the bite site and people become really fixated on the fang marks and the distance between the fang marks, etc. A brown snake's fangs are two millimetres long and often you can't even see the bite. Okay. Um, so whether you've got fang marks there or not, really doesn't uh, play much into, you know, your assessment of the patient. Mm -hmm. So that's local. Um, it's worth checking for 
enlarged or painful lymph nodes, draining lymph nodes, okay. exemplary and, um, and, and inguinal. And if they're there, they're fairly a good indicator of envenomment. Mm-hmm. Probably the most, uh, besides uh, looking for any sort of um, obvious bleeding, so that'll be from cannula sites or if they've had a, a cut or a wound, uh, and then a neurological examination and understanding the snake bite causes a descending flaccid paralysis, affecting um, the eyes first, so and and ex- external ocular muscle photosis, and extra and ophthalmoplegia. So just get testing the eyes because what will happen is they won't be able to move them or they'll complain of blurred vision, and it may not be nice in the sense that um, they've just got fixed eyes they may not, not be able to look one way and can look the other so it's quite variable fixed dilated pupils are, are, are sort of late um and then it'll progress to a bulbar palsy mm-hmm. um and and bulbar is important because at that point you start to lose the protection of an, of your airway mm-hmm. and that becomes a reason for intubating the patient even if they can still ventilate themselves often they're being intubated to protect the airway because yeah, they will um, uh, aspirate basically because they can't swallow properly. Then it will progress to um, respiratory paralysis and limb paralysis. One thing that I see a lot is often, oh, they're weak in their limbs, but then they don't really have any other signs. Really, limb weakness is is if you if you if you're paralysed, if you your limbs are paralysed, then really you're going to be completely paralysed at that point, and you know essentially need to be intubated and ventilated. Okay, all righty. And with those bulbar signs, I mean, clinically, I mean, I don't normally test gags as such. Is it a voice change or difficulty with secretions that you're looking for there? Or yeah, it, It's more you'll see it, and I've mainly seen it in Taipan bites, is you see yeah, patients not being able to swallow their saliva so they'll right. drool when you look or, yeah, when they try and talk. And, I mean, it's not easy to look at vocal cords, but certainly if, you know, the times that we've had to do that nice to you, you'll start seeing, you know, vocal cord paralysis of, of the whole area and okay. then you'll know that you know, it's at risk. Okay. okay. Oh, fair enough. Now, so our local flowchart advises that we call poisons as soon as we've attended to our ABCs, applied a pressure bandage and immobilised and collected blood. So why is it so important that we do contact poisons early? And that's something we've introduced in the last sort of two or three years. Um, And previously it would have said core poisons, but we're really pushing that now. What we've shown, you know, we've gone to lower doses of antivenom, but the thing that we've really found is that the early administration of antivenom is probably the most important thing. When we say early, within two or three hours of the bite, is, is really the, the time that we need to be given antivenom. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, what we showed in the Australian Snake Bite Project was that patients were getting to hospital you know, within two hours easily. The median time, I think, was uh, one and a half hours for a patient to be in hospital. Mm-hmm. But the median time to administration of antivenom was actually four hours, so it was out after the three-hour time because they would get assessed, we'd send off bloods, um, they'd take time, people that move on, then, oh, oh, no, they've got a coagulopathy, now we need to give them antivenom. So we found, on average, there was a two-and-a-half-hour delay between 
arrival to hospital and their time of administration of antivenom, which took you from really the time that antivenom is effective to it not being effective. So the reason we want an early call is not, oh, here's the bloods and anything. It's got a patient here, should we give antivenom, particularly if they've got headache or vomiting or any of those non-specific signs to call to then, you know, to decide to give antivenom. Because we understand that, you know, most, well, all doctors very rarely see snake bite. And making a decision in an unusual thing like that is, oh, well, let's get more of assessment. Really best just to speak to someone else and go, okay, should I give antivenom or not? Because now's the time. Also with retrieval. So if you've got a patient being retrieved because you can't get blood tests done, you may change them from arriving one hour after the bite to being in a regional hospital seven hours after the bite before they get antivenom. Whereas what we want is, do we need to give antivenom? Because almost every hospital should have antivenom, even if they don't have a laboratory. So we, it's that administration of early antivenom is why we want people to call the poison centre. Oh, that's fantastic. So I think that's, as you say, so important in our rural centres that we just get straight on to it, make that early call in, in conjunction with poisons. So what blood tests should we actually be collecting on this patient at, at the outset? We would do a full uh, everything on the outset, so a full blood count and with a blood film being done. So and that's not just an automated, it's not an automated blood count, but a, a full blood count when that can be done, but also not two days later. Electrolytes, we don't necessarily need liver function tests, but an, uh, an LDH is important. Think A. And then the coags being the most important, although I've left them to last, at least an INR and an APTT that is done in a laboratory. You can't use a point-of-care device. Um, and if possible, a fibrinogen and a quantitative D-dimer. Nowadays, once you have a laboratory INR available, you usually have the full coag set available. Our biggest problem is hospitals that don't have a laboratory INR, and that's usually the limiting factor in terms of patients staying in a, um, in a small hospital. Yeah, fair enough. And that's our sort of experience. We've got that full set of coagulation screen that we can do in our, in our laboratory locally, which is at one of our hospitals anyway, which is good. So when you're deciding from the poison centre, you know, what indications do you use for the decision to give antivenom? It's my, unfortunately, it's mainly those symptoms. We don't, the decision really has to be made before you have laboratory tests um, mm. because none of them change early enough. I mean, the coagulopathy occurs very early, so if you can get that result back immediately, yes, but antivenom is not going to prevent coagulopathy. We're using it more to prevent the myotoxicity and the neurotoxicity. Um, so, yeah, it's just non-specific symptoms. Um, and also whether this is, you know, a definite snake bite. Did they see the if I saw a snake, definitely bit me. I got a headache straight away. It's, you know, that's, I'm, I'm giving antivenom. The, yeah. the other thing is that myself and I think the other toxicologists more and more is that I'd be giving antivenom. I, I would prefer to give a few non-envenomed patients antivenom than missing envenomed cases. And that's why we say call the poison centre because then it's on me, <laughs> not on someone who hasn't seen a snake bite for five years. You know, they can blame me. And, I mean, that's how I've practised emergency medicine was you never do something unless you can blame someone else for it. 
So someone had chest pain, I'll speak to the cardiologist. Mm. When it comes to snake bite, then I'll take the rap for it because, you know, I'm happy to take the rap. Seen enough. I know I've given it to patients that are not venom. But at the same time, we're uh, more patients for getting anti-venom you know, right at that time. I get frustrated when I hear about a case, well, you know, there's been, you know, even coronial cases where, you know, anti-venom's been given at nine hours and a patient that turned up to hospital within one hour, clearly envenomed. So that's why we're doing it. And that's the sorts of things, you know, that we think through. I mean, even the toxicologists, I don't know if I'm calling for the poison centre. I mean, I'm on call as a toxicologist at the poison centre, but within the poison centre, we still have, oh, they'll call Jeff if it's a snake bite to discuss those cases. Oh, really, should we give antivenom? Just like I call one of the other toxicologists if it's organophosphate poisoning. So there is that. Once you get into the poison centre, you are essentially getting the best advice in Australia. I mean, that's just so helpful to us because I think, you know, as you know, working in the ED, things are often not straightforward and they're difficult decisions and being able to share that with an expert who's so keen to help is just it's been great working in in a rural department so once we've decided that yes you know we've spoken to poisons and we're going to give the anti-venom what do we need to prepare for prior to to giving this anti-venom yeah it prepares the right word you need to prepare for the fact that one in five patients are going to have um, an allergic reaction. That one in five is just an a, a, a immediate systemic hypersensitivity reaction, but usually only skin only. So, you know, flushing or urticaria, itchiness, etc. Only about two to three percent, so less than one in 20, will have anaphylaxis or severe anaphylaxis. And it's almost always hypotensive um, anaphylaxis. So, Preparation is you know, put your cannulas in, just have some fluid running and be prepared to give a fluid bolus and have adrenaline available. Ultimately, whatever way you're comfortable doing it, so I am adrenaline or if you're giving a, um, an IV infusion of you know, dilute adrenaline, um, either is fine, but have ready, don't be trying to find it once they have their, their, their reaction. Okay. And is there... Any concern giving adrenaline in patients who you're concerned might be coagulopathic? Yeah, I think there's always been concern. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence, um, and that was always the argument about previously pre-medication with adrenaline was given, and it was, oh, you know, you're increasing the risk of intracranial uh, hemorrhage. I, I, I don't think there's a risk, and we give adrenaline in these patients all the time. Okay. Um, in the Australian Snake Bite Project, so that's now 15 years. I think, well, when we published it, we published six intracranial hemorrhages. And certainly the use of adrenaline wasn't what predicted it. It was actually age um, and a history of uh, hypertension. So five of those six were on antihypertensives. And most of those presented late. So they, so they didn't present with their hemorrhage as they came into hospital. And we actually have a case of a normal CT and then a not normal CT after eight hours. So I think it's it's the group of patients who are going to have their hemorrhagic stroke, right? Um, and they this you know uh, push them to having it earlier. I mean, it's this is Verkov's tryout. Essentially, with Australian snakes, you have a coagulopathy, platelet function is essentially normal, 
and essentially there's no break in the circulation. There's not, not basement membrane brain injury or anything else. But the people that bleed are the ones who have trauma as well. So uh, any sort of trauma you know, will result, result in the bleed. And to be honest, the reason we admit most snake bites in Australia is for the simple reason that they don't fall over and hit their head or, 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 or cause that, that trauma. And I think that's why people have the, those intracranial bleeds are in the predisposed brain where I think that, you know, at some point it was going to happen anyway. Okay. And what about um, steroids, you know, with, with either an allergic reaction or a skin reaction or anaphylaxis? Do you recommend those as well? I certainly don't recommend them with the initial reaction. There's, there, I mean, there's no evidence, and, and that includes randomised controlled trial, big study in Sri Lanka that uh, steroids affect outcomes from the immediate reaction. There's also no evidence that um, antihistamines do. So, no. Um, where they certainly play a role is in serum sickness. What isn't established is if you prophylactically give patients steroids, are you going to prevent serum sickness? We don't know. And then again, there's also not evidence that if you give steroids at the time of serum sickness, whether it treats it, but, you know, clinical evidence there and experience would suggest that it does work and we certainly recommend it to patients who have got it. So what I say is more importantly is to tell the patient that they could have serum sickness, describe very clearly to them it's like a viral illness, you may have painful joints, muscles, fever, rash. If anything that like that happens, go to your GP or present back to the emergency department because you'll need to be treated. Uh, within the Australian Snake Bite Project, we actually the last page of it is a discharge information thing which is got made in it. And often I get a call from the GP saying, oh, I'm ringing up because the patient come in and they've brought this and they've, they've got this. And that way we can then provide further advice for giving steroids at that time. Okay. Oh, no, that, that's great. So in summary, if someone has a reaction during the administration of the antivenom, we would stop the antivenom temporarily perhaps, but depending on the reaction, and then give adrenaline and fluids as required. Is that pretty much the, the mainstay of treatment for that, Rhea? Yeah, th that is, but I think that would really only be if you've got severe anaphylaxis. I think if you've just got, uh, you know, a rash and they're feeling a bit unwell and they're itchy, I would just stop it. You certainly can give them fluids because there's little harm in that and you probably benefit. Um, and often we then just restart again uh, at half the rate. I wouldn't give adrenaline unless I've actually got, you know, a hypotensive patient because often it will resolve. And the other thing is that um, the recommendation is to administer it over 20, 30 minutes. And usually they've had the whole, the whole two vials, so in most patients are getting brown or tiger. They've had that before they have the reaction. Mm. There is a question about stopping or starting the antivenom. Now, when do we release the pressure bandage in this whole process? So my recommendation is once all the antivenom is in. There, there is some highly theoretical, partly animal evidence that there is a, it does take time for the antivenom to bind to toxins. And so, and that's probably in the order of 15 to 30 minutes, which is about the time it takes to, for all the antivenom to and previously, you know, there was things like, oh, take it off halfway through the antivenom. I think once antivenom's in and done, 
then you can take off the bandage and that's fine. Remembering that, partly my belief and there's reasonable evidence for it, that in almost all cases that bandage isn't doing anything. Although that's not going to affect how we actually do it because if they've put a tourniquet on, then when you take that in effect of the bandage that's too tight off, um, there is a risk of um, sudden inflammation. Okay. Now, done all this, and in the meantime, our bloods are being processed in the laboratory. What sort of findings are suggestive of envenomation on, on the blood results? Okay, so probably the most important ones in Australia are coagulopathy, and we'll see that with um, all brown snakes, all tiger snakes, and their related uh, rough scaled snakes, um, and taipan. Um, and that'll usually be unrecordable coag, so an unrecordable INR, an unrecordable APTT. If a fibrinogen is available, undetectable fibrinogen, and then a D-dimer that's usually above the limit of detection. If they're taken within the first hour, you may not have it completely abnormal, and it may be normal or it may be very unusual, but any time after an hour, you'll, you'll get those results. The most important thing about the coags is to speak to the laboratory because we still have cases where the laboratory sends back the bloods and says, oh, this is a poor collection, you need to redo it again. So if anything comes back abnormal from the lab about the coags, you can be almost sure that they're envenomed. Yes. And what the lab needs to be told is modern machines don't cope with it because they want to check everything first and say, oh, it's contaminated or it's not covered in it, et cetera. And two hours later, the machine finally decides, oh, no, this is actually the result. Whereas a prothrombin time takes 180 seconds. An APTT takes 180 seconds if you do the manual test. Okay. So you tell the lab, can someone do the manual test? Because I'm pretty sure this is going to be incoagulable blood. Don't waste your time you know, running on a machine. Or if the machine's giving you an error, you know that's the coagulopathy there. Other tests that become abnormal become abnormal later. One that's quite useful is the white cell count, but again, often takes up to four hours to become abnormal, and it's just really a non-specific marker of inflammation. You get a raised neutrophil count, and you can get a low, low lymphocyte count. That's just what we see in snake, but doesn't occur in brown snake as often, so it's not so useful. And then other markers after that are things like I mean, we worry about CK, but really. Most of the other biomarkers tell us that you've had that injury. So RACE-CK says, well, you've had myotoxicity. So it's only useful in the sense to say, well, you've had it. Um, you should have given antivenom before. Similarly, with an acute kidney injury, it's too late once you're studying. Even though we need to know about these, they're, they're not ones that are useful diagnostically. Okay. Okay. I know that's a great overview. Now, our rural hospitals have different access to medical staffing, um, pathology and closed observation units or intensive care. What requirements are there for managing a patient with a snake bite and when should we transfer? Um, really, there's only three requirements, that you have antivenom, that you have some element of critical care. And really, that simply may just be an emergency department bed that's got a nurse there the whole time, not one-to-one -one nursing, but you know, reasonable nursing care in terms of they're not looking after a ward of 20 people. 
and a laboratory that can do an INR. And usually that last one is the one that rules out you know, most hospitals. So that means you can admin, administer antivenom and clearly treat anaphylaxis. So that usually means you need to have a medical practitioner, although in some cases um, nurse practitioners may be able to do it in some remote settings. Remembering that if you're then retrieving your patient hours and hours, you have to have done all the treatment before you actually do that. So an interesting case that I was involved with, and you know, with a net call for a two-year-old that was bitten by a brown snake, who actually presented collapsed, had a cardiac arrest, the father gave CPR, he came into the emergency department and was completely well again, which is what happens with the early collapse had an unrecordable coagulopathy and then they were going to retrieve this patient to Sydney. And I said, what for? <laughs> I said, this patient just now needs to be watched to make sure that they don't fall over and hurt themselves if they bleed. Um, so you, you don't need, you know, intensive care units and tertiary teaching hospitals you know, to manage most snake bite except for complications such as acute kidney injuries where, you know, um, they may need dialysis, but that's that's a later transfer decision rather than an early one. And part of that is also pre-medical decisions, so emergency services. And ongoing frustration of mine is that snake bite is the opposite to head injury. I mean, lots of people talk, but you know, if you've got a head injury, you need to get that patient as soon as possible to a neurosurgeon. That means you need to transfer them to a tertiary centre. Snake bite is exactly the opposite. You need to get the patient to antivenom. So that doesn't require helicopters and transfer of potential patients who could have collapsed to a tertiary hospital. It's get them to the closest place there's antivenom. And in Australia, that's pretty close. So when I see someone who's eight minutes away from one of the hospitals in the lower Hunter region being transferred by helicopter to the John Hunter without antivenom, it doesn't make any sense. So this is something that can be managed in rural centres and regional centres, because we can give telephone advice uh, most of the time without, you know, that retrieval. Gosh, that is really, really good to know. So the key thing, as you say, getting that anti-venom in, that's very, very good. So I, I do wonder sometimes you do get these patients with the, ooh, not sure, was it a snake bite? And they don't really um, have any obvious symptoms of envenomation. And so we're doing the, you know, the serial bloods. Now, if this person has been envenomed, but it wasn't immediately obvious, like in what sort of time frame do the symptoms or the lab signs, you know, you briefly mentioned before, what time do they usually start to show in this sort of 12 hours of monitoring that we're doing? Sure. I mean, symptoms, they really begin within the first hour. So people okay. who get symptoms at five hours doesn't, you know, I think it's probably not related to envenoming. The coagulopathy has... Almost always some evidence of it by you know, two hours. We've looked at D-dimer, which is the most sensitive test, hmm. um, just recently. Before two hours, it, it, you will still miss some cases, but at two hours, a, a D-dimer above 2.5, not above 2.5, above 2.5, is almost completely diagnostic of, of the coagulopathy. But then the problem is, is that you're at two hours. So even our best blood test is still too, often too late um, for antivenom. And the development of other blood tests, as I said, are later than that. Some are more for monitoring. So in patients who get the coagulopathy, and I haven't talked much about this 
there is this association with a thrombotic microangiopathy, which is a bit like HUS, hemolytic, hemolytic uremic syndrome, but it's not. Um, and the main end organ injury is acute kidney injury. So for those patients that are admitted, this like in, in, a, in a small rural hospital that can do an INR, they can stay there, you do the creatinine, and if the creatinine's going up or they've got evidence on a blood film um, of the thrombotic microangiopathy, you know, at that point, you, know, you may decide though they need to be moved. But it's not urgent, it's you know, 24 hours. And, and you'll pick those patients up as long as they're not you know, discharged. So in terms of watching that uh, 12-hour observation period, completely asymptomatic patient, first set of bloods is, is normal. Very few of those are actually going to be uh, envenomed. We did the study that looked at the 12 hours. Uh, really, at six hours, 96% um, of the patients had declared themselves. And there was only a few in that next six hours. And unfortunately, those patients were ones where bloods weren't taken earlier. But because that was the only data we had, we couldn't say, oh, it's six hours. But at six hours, I will let a patient go against medical advice. I always, always tell them to come stay for 12 hours, but you'll find a lot of patients at six hours who are completely well. They've had two sets of bloods will just say, I'm going, doc, I'm fine. And you can say to them, well, the chances are that you are fine, but there is this small risk. Um, they need you to sign out against advice. And we get a lot of those patients, but that's why the recommendation is to 12 hours. Okay. Oh, no, that, that's fair enough. So I thought we just might briefly talk about a similar case to one you mentioned, just to have a look at another aspect of care. So another hypothetical case, so this time a five-year-old boy brought in by ambulance after being found collapsed on the family farm, had some puncture marks on his right arm. The ambulance was called and en route he stopped breathing and CPR was commenced. So ETA is 10 minutes. So how should we prepare for the arrival of this patient? So this is a classic presentation of, of a ground snake bite with that early collapse. Mm. It occurs in a third of cases, but most cases resolve spontaneously, as the case I described and I suspect in this case as well. But what it basically says is this patient's envenomed. So I talked about those non-specific symptoms. What I haven't said is that that history of collapse in the first half an hour is also completely predictive of severe envenoming. So the preparation is have your antivenom ready because you're going to give that to this patient based on that history mm -hmm. before any you know before you get any blood tests or anything else done. Mm -hmm. More than likely, if they if they have their collapse or I mean they, we talk about cardiac arrest, but it's really it, it seems to be vasoplegic shock, and they just drop their blood pressure for just a short period of time and then go into cardiac arrest. If that's treated immediately. It's almost always survivable. Well, most deaths from snake bite are brown snakes and people who collapse who have that cardiac arrest and nothing's done. Right. Um, and, and out of hospital. And, and they're the sad cases because really if someone just did CPR for 10 minutes, most of those patients wake up. So I would expect that child to come in probably recovering already, give them antivenom. Um, if not, they would just give them antivenom and it would be the standard protocol for cardiac arrest in a child. 
Okay. I mean, if this child came in and they had sort of no intravenous access and no sort of bandage on, would you be able to give the antivenom okay just through an IO if you thought that was the quickest way of getting it in there? I must admit, I haven't given it through an IO. I, I don't think I would do that. Um, I mean, if you can get access, you've got medical people to get access within, you know, five or ten minutes. I think that would be reasonable to do that and give antivenom rather than um, you're not, particularly if they're no longer in arrest. I think it's different if if you've then got, if you've got a prolonged arrest because there's been late CPR or prolonged arrest because there hasn't been a recovery, then you'd certainly be considering those sorts of things instead. But, you know, that's where, you know, survivability is already um, poor. Okay. All righty. So try and get your normal IV access and then give the antivenom. And like in children, my understanding is that it's you, you're going, you're treating, you know, an envenomation, which is the same amount no matter what body it goes into. So that it's the standard just dose, same as for an adult. Yeah, same dose, yeah, because you, yeah, you're saying you're treating the amount of venom injected. Okay. And in terms of giving it in this sort of situation where someone's you know, having CPR or they've collapsed, do we still sort of dilute and give it over sort of 10 to 15 minutes, the antivenom in this sort of scenario? No, you can you can give it as a, a slow push bolus in these cases. We, we've far been trying to give it as a young, uh, because if you dilute it down and then you lose your access, you've only given a small amount and then you're trying to get access again, whereas if you've got access, then you can give that bolus over you know, a couple of minutes straight out of this, um, you, know, you know, a syringe. Just undiluted straight in over a few minutes. Well, we were, you're normally going to dilute it into like a 10 mil, 20 mil syringe. So that's going to dilute most of your brown. Because um, they're only like, you're only talking about two to five mils for those ones. Oh, okay. So, you, yeah, but maybe not up to the full, I think, is it? No, not, certainly not up to 500 mils because the simple fact that you're not going to, that's going to take 10 yeah. minutes too long to give in. And if you lose your access in an arrest situation, then you know, you're going to have to draw more antivenom. So then give it as a bonus. Okay. I just find it good to think about these things in advance so you're not sort of trying to work them out. So bank it up to about 20 mils and just push it in over a few minutes. Yeah, okay. That's, that's good to know. And now if in this sort of situation, I did wonder about, you know, if you're giving it that way, it's it'd be a bit hard to know whether they're having any signs of anaphylaxis unless they develop a rash. But I suppose we're giving adrenaline as part of an ALS protocol. Would that be protective in that situation? Yeah, that, yeah, that's fine. I mean, you, you're not going to know and, you know, all they're going to get is hypertensive, severe anaphylaxis and the treatment's going to be lots of fluid and adrenaline, which you, you're going to be giving anyway. Okay. And if we were doing CPR, how long would we need to continue that to sure, you know, be sure that the anti-venom has had time to have its effect? Oh, I, I think, you know, on the whole, snake bite patients are healthy and often young, um, CPR should continue until, you know, you've spoken to a lot of people. Um, yeah. And usually it's, a, I mean, yes, there's certainly cases, recent coronial case um, of, you know, patients not surviving and, you know, decisions being made in an hour or two. But usually what happens is you do get a return of circulation. Okay. Um, and then you've, but you've then got patients with, multi-organ failure 
that then go on to die over the next you know sort of 24 48 hours because of the um you know the associated injury um, but in those cases that's when you call the poison center the retrieval team local intensivist and you know go for a while before you know everyone's Okay. Oh, no, that's fair enough. So, I mean, that's been very interesting. I didn't really understand that sort of vasoplegic type response with that collapse. I, I was thinking it was more, it would be an ongoing thing. So it's good to know that if, if that's managed, they'll probably, um, they will retain, you know, um, get return of circulation and you can, you can go from there. Excellent. Now. And most, of, most of those are, I mean, as I said, they, they resolve themselves. So in the cases, and it occurs early, so it's usually pre-hospital, but in the cases where it's occurred in hospital and you'll speak to the doctors when it's happened, usually they don't get intubated because they recover before anyone can actually intubate them. So what happens is they collapse, they're hypotensive, they become apneic, they get basic life support. Someone gets a cannula and gives them some fluids and they start waking up and yeah, they don't get intubated. So it's really um, a very, very rapid in terms of minutes before they recover. And that, when it occurs outside of hospital, I mean, my first brown snake I ever treated um, in Darwin was in an Indigenous woman who was sitting there perfectly well. And then I was surprised when she was cardiopathic. And then her husband said, oh, yeah, she passed out in the back of the car for 10 minutes and then she woke up again. Oh, right. But so I asked specifically, yeah. did I get the <laughs> Okay. Oh, no, that's just been a fantastic overview and, yeah, really have been very interested with the insights you've got there for us about the snake bites. Do you actually have any other advice before we finish up today on, on the management of snake bites in the rural emergency department? Uh, I don't think there's you know, anything specific. One thing I always say, which is less medical, it's more preventative. If you're going to live in near snakes, if you just wear jeans and a pair of boots and you don't try and pick a snake up, you're almost not going to get envenomed. Okay. None of our snakes can bite through jeans or boots. So that's just in terms of you know, simple you know, advice and things. If people bring in snakes, always a problem. Um, if it's dead, well, that's fine. Uh, but if it's alive, then you have to you know, sort that. That can help us if we've got snakes, you know, sometimes pictures and, you know, through the poison centre we can get IDs of dead or alive snakes. Um, so it's useful to have that information you know, if you can. Uh, but other than that, I think you've covered all of the important things. Oh, no, that's great. No, yeah, I do know that when our kids have friends over, we often send a text, you know, we're on some acres saying, you know, bring your bring your runners. So <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate that's That's been very, very helpful. And um, we do very grateful for poisons and the toxicologists working in these rural areas because it's just a wonderful resource and we do feel very supportive with all the assistance you give us. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.